0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Kara Robertson, author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden. Robertson holds a Ph.D. in English from Oxford University and a J.D. from Stanford Law School. She began researching the Lizzie Borden case as a Harvard undergraduate in 1990 and has been interested in the story ever since. The Trial of Lizzie Borden is a meticulously researched book of nonfiction that looks at the life of Lizzie Borden, the family life she shared with her stepmother, Abby, father Andrew, and sister Emma in their house in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892. The narrative goes on to look at the murder, the trial, and the eventual acquittal of Lizzie Borden, who was accused of killing her father and stepmother. We began the interview with Kara Robertson sharing why the Lizzie Borden case has interested her since the 1990s.
1: Well, I've always liked a mystery, uh, and it's uh, a, technically it's an unsolved mystery. Um, certainly, even if it's not a whodunit, uh, depending upon what you think the solution is, uh, it's a why it. And I thought it offered a unique window into the Gilded Age. Um, trials are especially revealing of a society's codes. Each side presents a narrative of events to a jury that's designed to represent the community at large. And in so doing, you know that reveals what stories uh, that community wants and expects to hear. Uh, and in the case of uh, Lizzie Borden, there was also massive press coverage uh, and the and the presence of journalists and reporters meant that there was an additional layer of uh, commentary about the case, which gives one even more insight. And then particularly when it's, when it's um, what you might call an important public trial like that of Lizzie Borden, the trials seem to be about something more than the fate of a particular defendant. And uh, that could be very revealing too.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the crime for people who aren't familiar with it. We start in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1892. Lizzie Borden is living with her father, Andrew, her stepmother, Abby, and her sister, Emma. And her and her sister are from a different woman than their stepmother. She died. And so there's always been some rumors and some what seems like reality of, of how they feel towards Abby, which is not just all kindness and love. So can you talk a little bit about the family? End the crime.
1: Uh, As you as you say, on the surface, the uh, family probably didn't look that different than um, others of its type. Uh, Lizzie and Emma's mother, Sarah Borden, uh, had died uh, when the girls were young. Their father had remarried um, a woman named Abby, who had essentially raised Lizzie. Emma was uh, almost ten years older at the time, and. Although on the surface, uh, things looked reasonably normal. There were, as you say, rumors, uh, and there were uh, tensions mostly over money. Uh, And these came to a head when Mr. Borden decided to give uh, a property to Abby so that her sister could live in it rent-free. Her sister had financial difficulties. And his daughters, Emma and Lizzie, resented this and thought that, What he did for Abby, he could do for his own blood. Uh, He then transferred a comparable property into their name, but it didn't heal the rift. And at that point, the house became the site of a Cold War uh, in which the older and the younger Bordens led as separate lives as were possible. They preferred not to eat together. Uh, The girls, or young women, really, Uh, entertain their visitors upstairs in a guest room. The barriers between them were literalized in the locking rituals of the Borden household. Uh, It was a house that had been converted from a two-family tenement house into a one-family house, which meant that there were no central halls and uh, every room had a door into another room. Uh, And as a result, the upstairs bedrooms were connected to each other. And these were not only locked... To, for privacy, but um, furniture was moved in front of them so that there was no possibility of of anyone passing from the daughter side to the parent side.
0: So you you get this idea of a cold household, and Lizzie and Emma were both spinsters, and they weren't given much money at all by their father to spend, and their father was. Was wealthy. He wasn't, he was from a family that had some cousins and other people that he was closely related to that were sort of the uber wealthy, but he was wealthy. He was also very stingy with his money and he saved it a lot. He didn't spend it. They didn't live in the part of town where. Some of their relatives lived that was up on a hill, and and really the place of social status. But they lived right in town. They had a nice house, they had food on their table, and the girls did have some experiences going on trips and and whatnot. But there's a possibility that if if Lizzie did kill the parents, that there was money and the issues of money involved.
1: Yes, the money motive um, is an interesting factor because it complicates the case for the prosecution. You know, It would seem to provide a pretty straightforward motive, not only for the murders, but also for the order in which the murders took place. Mrs. Borden is killed in an upstairs guest room about an hour and a half before her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that interval of time makes it quite unlikely that an outsider could have gotten in and then hidden to commit both murders while still avoiding the two women who were in the house or known to be in the house at the time, Lizzie Borden and the maid, Bridget Sullivan. Uh, but a financial motive was seen as male and the prosecutors just couldn't bring themselves to make that argument explicitly that, that really what Lizzie Borden might've wanted was financial independence. At best they can argue that she was ungrateful and maybe had a taste for luxuries, but that a money motive was a level of cold-blooded calculation that just seemed inconsistent with why a woman would commit that kind of crime.
0: And let's talk about that kind of crime. I mean, both parents seemed bludgeoned with a blunt object in their head. Can you describe the scene?
1: Right. The Bordens were found hacked to death in their home, uh, on an otherwise normal summer morning in Fall River, uh, it was a horrible crime. Uh, Mr. Borden's head had the appearance of raw meat, according to an early witness. And while it wasn't the 40 wax or 41 wax of the rhyme, it was 19 and 10 strokes of a, a hatchet or an axe. Probably a hatchet, but some kind of weapon like that. And that alone was enough to catapult the case into front page news uh, because it was such a shocking crime.
0: Yeah. And I think part of it too, and I'd like to talk about the the cultural and social atmosphere of Fall River uh, in 1892 and the fact that she was a woman, you know, at the time, first of all, women couldn't even sit on juries. So she wasn't in a jury of her peers. Secondly, she, there were these philosophies about sort of the mind frame of what a criminal might look like, and women did not fit in. And if women did fit in, they were like monstrous and gruesome. They weren't someone who, you know, gave to charity or went to community events and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that, the thing about the Gilded Age that interested you, and then some of the specifics about Lizzie and the culture surrounding her.
1: Well, one of the attractions of writing about the Gilded Age, and particularly this this case, in the context of the Gilded Age, is it is uh, a lens onto uh, views about women, and specifically what they're capable of at a time when women's roles were changing, uh, and uh, this was a point of you know some tension. Uh, and this intersected with ideas about criminality uh, in the same era. By the late nineteenth century what you might call earlier ideas of, of criminal, criminals who are just ordinary people, gave way to the notion that criminals were born, not made. Um, and then it was possible uh, as a result to discern a criminal type based on physical characteristics. Uh, and not surprisingly, um, those uh, characteristics tended to be found more often in, um, in the newly arrived immigrants rather than the older stock. And at the same time, uh, women were viewed as fundamentally different than men. Biology was destiny. And women had profound disabilities, uh, partly as a result of their menstrual cycles. And the convergence of of all these things together meant that the violent female criminal was a true monster. And then the jury looked at someone like Lizzie Borden who ticked all the boxes of respectable femininity. Uh, And she certainly didn't look like one, nor had anything in her prior life indicated she was anything but a normal church-going middle-class lady. So
0: when it was time for the trial, there were some heavy hitters brought in. Can you talk a little bit about the defense and the prosecution and a little bit about their approach?
1: The lead prosecutor was a uh, the district attorney whose name was Hosea Knowlton, uh, who had an excellent reputation and and uh, went on to serve in higher office. And his junior prosecutor was another district attorney named William Moody, who eventually sat on the Supreme Court. And both of excellent reputation. Uh, the defense also was well represented, first by. Lizzie Borden's local lawyer, Andrew Jennings, who had been primarily a business lawyer uh, and he had quickly discovered the need for reinforcements and had hired a well-known Boston attorney named Melvin Adams, who was a bit of a dandy, uh, but very well regarded, and the former governor of the state of Massachusetts, George Robinson, who was uh, a beloved figure and had a common touch that seemed to be very appealing to juries.
0: The the trial ends in acquittal because they just the, the jury just doesn't feel like they have enough either way.
1: You know, as a as a practical matter, the prosecution was not able to uh, present its most compelling evidence, namely Lizzie Borden's attempt to buy poison before the murders. Uh, and that would have shown intent. And also uh, would have permitted the prosecution to puncture the defense argument that Lizzie Borden was really just an innocent bystander um, who had had a lucky escape. That she was someone who just happened to be in the household at the wrong time um, and was much like the wives or daughters of um, jurors who wouldn't, probably wouldn't be able to account for their own times on a given day. Uh, because that was the nature of, of uh, women's life in the domestic sphere. Uh, and then the other piece of important piece of evidence was Lizzie Borden's own inquest testimony, which provided the best evidence of the hatreds in the house and also showed uh, Lizzie Borden's inconsistent testimony um, about where she was at the time of both murders. But having said all that, um, I, I do think the case. Whether or not someone like Lizzie Borden could have done the murders, not whether she actually did so. So in that respect, I'm not sure that that uh, uh, having a slightly stronger prosecution case would have made any difference.
0: So when it's done, she's acquitted and goes on to live in Fall River, actually moves to the neighborhood on the Hill that, that supposedly she and Emma had always wanted to live in. Can you tell us a little bit about her life afterwards?
1: On one level, uh, her life after the trial was the life that she had always wanted. She and her sister moved to a grander house in the elite residential district of Fall River called The Hill. She had her own money. She even attended the theater in Boston, There, she met a charismatic actress named Nance O'Neill, sparking rumors of a relationship beyond mere friendship. It it may have been that scandal, though there were also rumors about a handsome coachman that uh, sparked a rift with her sister who moved out from their shared house in uh, 1905, about 12 years after the trial, and never spoke to Lizzie Borden again. But on the other hand, uh, she was shut out of Fall River Society. She was shunned by the people she most wished to know. Uh, She found that she was not welcome in her church, the the church which had provided the bedrock of her support during the trial. Uh, And so she lived a life that was quite isolated. She took comfort in a succession of dogs for whom she built an elevated seat in the chauffeur-driven car. She acted as uh, auntie Borden to the children of her domestic staff, uh, sending them uh, special delivery birthday cards and uh, taking them to ice cream. But it seemed as if the elite in Fall River that had protected her during the trial exacted their own sentence. You know, that, that it, it had a it felt tribal, I think, the response. Um, so that so that when she was under threat from outsiders and that um, her crime would reflect badly on the town she received the support uh, but then that really didn't mean they wanted to have her to tea
0: so as she went on with her life just kind of ended up living a quiet life towards the end a lot of characters around her had their own life from the trial one for instance was the jury they met for regularly for over a decade after the trial ended
1: that's right there were reports of uh of uh, crankiness among the jurors, the the uh, journalists followed the movements of the jury uh, with as much interest as they followed the lawyers or anyone else involved with the trial, and described them marching around and uh, together in lockstep and sympathizing uh, with them because they were limited into their as to their entertainment while they were sequestered, uh, and the hardest part of their service at least in the view of uh, several of the male journalists was that, uh, they weren't allowed to drink any, uh, liquor. They, they seemed to gel, uh, and they took a picture of themselves, which they presented to Lizzie Borden after the trial. And she wrote them individual letters, thanking them for being her deliverers.
0: I think what is the most fascinating element of this story, which you talk about in the last chapter, is what hasn't changed. One of her defense attorneys left his journal and notes in his law firm that still exists today under the, the attorney-client privilege that no one can open them. Can you talk about that?
1: Governor George Robinson, uh, Lizzie Borden's main trial lawyer, Uh, founded a law firm, and uh, it still exists. He died unexpectedly in 1896, uh, leaving his files in his office. And for whatever reason, the material that he collected on Lizzie Borden is still in the possession of his law firm. By contrast, the files, uh, which include trial journals and uh, press clippings, Um, and a few other legal documents um, from Lizzie Borden's local lawyer, uh, Andrew Jennings, were stored at his house in an old hip bath. And at some point, the family, his descendants, just donated it to the Historical Society. So the law firm founded by George Robinson has taken the position, uh, which they say was dictated by the Massachusetts Bar of Board Overseers, that not only may they not disclose the actual contents of the the Borden files, but they uh, may not even describe what is in them. And so they sit at the law firm, uh, preserved because the law firm acknowledges their historic value, yet at the same time they they can imagine no circumstance that would permit them to disclose them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just pre- presents. I mean, it's not a conundrum because the law is the law. But I think for for people, you know, who want to go into a more emotional or even common sense is like, well, you can open these and it's not going to hurt anybody who's alive today. Get let us into the mystery. You know, this is something the Lizzie Borden case has has spurned, you know, poetry and films and documentaries and your book and all kinds of art that has sprung from the fascination of this case. And because she was acquitted, it's hard not to wonder what is in there.
1: Right. It leaves us with, at with a black box. While I imagine what is in there is comparable to the contents of the hip bath that was the unlikely repository of the other defense lawyers files, we just don't know. Uh, and it is a tantalizing possibility that, uh, there would be some information in there that would shed light on the case
0: but if you if you open it you're you're opening up what attorney client privileges mean and what a a, a will might mean.
1: I think technically their position hinges on um, what they view as their professional responsibility of, of confidentiality rather than the technical question of attorney client privilege. But I do think the application of the doctrine or whether it's, whether it's a privilege, a doctrine or a professional code um, in this instance is, creates an absurd outcome.
0: One of the things that you mentioned uh- in the in your acknowledgments are people called bordenites so there's definitely a lot of people out there who are really fascinated with this i don't know if they that's their name themselves that they call themselves board but obviously there's a subculture of people you're in them <laughs> um <that's,
1: laughs> well i thought it sounded better than obsessed people yeah
0: that um <laughs> that are interested so i mean are there a lot of them out there and do they have a position on what they really think or is it such a mixed bag amongst them
1: yeah, there there is a significant group of people who who um, seem drawn to the case. Um, most are obsessed with uh, solving it. You know, and some believe that they have solved it. So they know the details of the what you might call the locked door mystery part of the Borden case, backwards and forwards. So who was in what point, where, and uh, at what point in Andrew Borden's walk from the center of town did he arrive at X place? Um, and there's something, you know, there's something about the Borden case, and this happened even at the time of the trial, that, that turned everyone into a kind of amateur detective, so that there are people who go to the house, which is now operated as a and b and much like the people at the time, you know, will fall in the upstairs room and see if they can be heard downstairs, um, or look to see if at a certain point on the stairs they can see under the guest bed, uh, which is where the body of Mrs. Borden lay as Lizzie Borden was descending um, from the stairs that morning on August 4th. So there's the, the puzzle part, uh, and then there, there are also people who uh, are interested in the psychological aspects of it, and even another group that, that looks at the case as a, as a uh, center of paranormal activity.
0: Do you have an opinion about her guilt or innocence?
1: I thought it was important um, in writing the book to, to leave that question open uh, to let the facts speak for themselves as much as possible and to lay it out as carefully as possible. I found that in reading other secondary sources that you know tended to be solution books you know inevitably when you're writing one and you have an outcome in mind uh, the presentation, has to be a little bit skewed because you emphasize certain evidence, certain pieces of evidence, and you downplay others. And there's something I think quite dissatisfying about that. Ultimately, I find myself, you know, in the same position of the journalist at the trial who said it's hard to imagine that she could have done it, you know, within that amount of time and cleaned herself up, et cetera. Um, but it also seems impossible that anyone else could have done it.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yes. Um, this is the beginning of a short story called On Being Told That Her Second Husband Has Taken His First Lover by Tess Lessinger. It's from 1935. Well, you think in a sprightly voice, this is no surprise, at least essentially. So it's nice, my dear, that you are always so clever. And sad, my dear, that you always need to be. Time was when a thing like this was a shock that fell heavily in the pit of your stomach and gave you indigestion all at once. But you can only feel a a thing like this in its entirety the first time. After that, it's a weaker repetition. Nowadays, you go around automatically expecting the worst all the time so that you can only be pleasantly surprised by the exceptions. Pretty nice to be so clever, Cornelia, my gal, Pretty sad, too. Now when the message is shot out to you, you've got a nice little lined glove like a catcher's mitt for it to fall into, more or less painlessly, more or less soundlessly. Oh, sure, the details, falling like pepper into a fresh wound, sting a bit. And, of course, the confirmation, the dead certain confirmation of what you were clever enough to know and clever enough to keep away from knowing does wrap you round in a sort of straitjacket for a minute, but no nausea comes.
0: Why did you choose this?
1: Uh, I remember reading it for the first time uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, probably before I really understood what was going on in the story. Uh, And, you know, as a bookish girl, uh, I was drawn to uh, 19th century classics, uh, and I still am. Um, So, uh, I found the opening of this short story just arresting. The way in which the narrator grabs the reader and the idea that the narrator and the protagonist were the same person, and, and also that the narrator could be so bitter. Uh, she seemed much more like a, a modern person than the novels I had been reading.
0: Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: This is a paragraph from the chapter that's on uh, the closing arguments at the trial, and uh, the prosecutor, Josea Knowlton, has just explained that the motive for the murders was uh, enmity towards uh, Mrs. Borden. Knowlton's diction reduced Abby to the status of servant in her own household. Whether or not that was strictly accurate, it was metaphorically apt capturing the consistent treatment of her death as the lesser tragedy. According to the prosecution's theory, Abby was the intended murder victim, yet nearly a month elapsed before her murder was added to the charges against Lizzie Borden. Abby herself remains a cipher. She might as well be a domestic ghost, materializing only as the unwitting precipitant of the Borden's slow-burning conflagration. Yet at times she looms much larger, cast as the stepmother of fairy tales, the usurper who comes between father and daughter, who siphons off the family wealth to her own impecunious line and whose physical size instantiates her greed. As for clues to her actual personality, according to Bridget Sullivan, Abby was always very kind and good to her. Mrs. Miller, Dr. Bowen's mother-in-law, who also lived across the street from the Bordens, said that she had lost in Mrs. Borden the best and most intimate neighbor she had ever met. And before the property dispute, Lizzie said that she would ask her stepmother to intervene with her father. On the rare occasions he denied her something she really wanted. Though that perceived influence was recast as betrayal, Abby's single monetary demand on the Borden Fisk was for the benefit of her half-sister and her own stepmother, not for herself.
0: Tell me why you chose that.
1: Uh, I chose that passage because Abby is the character in the story that seems the most elusive. She's the unloved stepmother, uh, and she's treated as a caricature um, in most accounts of the case, insofar as she rises uh, to the level of any interest at, at all. And while not that much is known about her before the murders, you know, I do discuss her when, when I talk about the family at the beginning, but I found that in laying out the story, you know, it, uh, laying out the trial as it unfolded, that I was recapitulating the problem that I was, that, uh, I was also creating an absence, uh, and I wanted to find a way to remedy that. To, to remind the reader that there was this real person named Abby Borden who was murdered.
0: Where do you write?
1: Uh, I write in my study at home.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I like to take a walk, particularly uh, with my dog. Uh, and if I can see the ocean, that's probably the best thing. Though I, I should say I often get ideas that way and um, find solutions to problems that I'm having in the course of the walk.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, My agent.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Poorly. It's unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, because it has its good sides, too. um, It's part of the process. Uh, I tend to go for a walk, uh, and then uh, I um, often listen to really overwrought music, uh, and I find that helpful. And what is your favorite word? Ruminate. Ruminate.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Cara Robertson, author of the nonfiction book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.